The Holy Gospel according to John, the eighth chapter. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered Jesus, We are descendants of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean by saying you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not have a permanent place in the household. The son has a place there forever. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. The Gospel of the Lord. I invite you all to be seated. I, uh, I recently found a, a website that replaced every time very truly or verily, verily appears with Look Buddy. And uh, I just was reading this and was thinking it was funny to think, Look Buddy, I tell you everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not have a permanent place in the household. The son has a place there forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And doesn't that kind of put a, a different kind of twist on it? it? Instead of, you know, the, the great holy, very truly I say unto you, as we imagine Jesus preparing to ascend into the clouds, look, buddy, let me tell you about the way things really are in the kingdom of God. Now, this is kind of what the gospel is supposed to do, right? The gospel is something that takes our preconceptions and our, our ideas about who God is and what God's about that we carry with us from either what our culture tells us about God, which newsflash is often wrong, or, or sometimes what our family members who are well-meaning tell us about God, which again, newsflash, occasionally that's wrong too. And the gospel tells us about the God who is not the God who either our fear conjures God up to be or our, our own self-flattery causes us to think God might be, which happens to be in agreement with everything we think, not that I ever do this with God, or you know, those other preconceived notions that we have about God that are, that are more cultural um, artifacts than they are actual facts that come from the gospel. You know, Look Buddies tells us, I'm about to tell you how things really are, and so i I love to imagine that because that also gives Jesus a little bit of an edge of sarcasm. And being a sarcastic person myself, I imagine that God is sarcastic too, right? So obviously all these things that I've said to set this up, I engage in and we're all guilty of it. The Reformation though, as we celebrate Reformation Sunday this Sunday, we're in 1517 on tomorrow. Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany thus beginning 500 years of Reformation. You know, that's Martin Luther saying, look, buddy, to the Pope. Now, it turns out that the Pope is not accustomed to have people saying, look, buddy, to him, especially not Leo X, who had a tendency to kind of lord things over people. And so, in the short term, this did not work out very well for Martin Luther. It, it happened that at this time, the princes in Germany were also looking for a way to, stop, to pay less taxes. I know this is shocking. And so they were looking for a way to get out from under the thumb of the Pope. And so they, they hid Martin Luther and ferreted him around and gave him time to translate the Bible and to write more angry letters and to do all the things. You know, and for y'all, the, the angry letters that Martin Luther wrote, this is kind of analogous to like Twitter or, or Instagram when someone posts something kind of passive aggressive and expects everyone else to go along with it, right? So, so Luther was basically sending an angry tweet, and, except it was way more than 140 characters. So, you know, this, this time that we celebrate of the Reformation is essentially Martin Luther saying, look, buddy, to the Pope. 
But we also have this, this kind of conflict, not just between Luther's desire to have a, a faith that's based on grace versus Tetzel, who was selling indulgences and made the Pope a lot of money in Germany, you know, who wanted to sell people on the idea that you could buy your way into heaven. It wasn't just that simple. It was the argument between an angry God who is waiting to burn us with lightning and fire when we mess up just this much and doesn't really want to forgive us but really wants to punish us and the fact of who God is, that God loves us. And much to everyone's surprise, God acts like God loves us. This is what the Gospels are about. Not only does God love us, but God also acts like God loves us, which means that it looks loving. And so what we're really fighting in the Reformation is a battle that we still wage today, which is the group of people who want to tell us that God is this passive-aggressive, mean, angry bully who's waiting to beat us up, and that through the waters of baptism, God forgives us our sins and declares that we are God's children and makes us a part of God's family. And God's family is a family without baggage. Therefore, when God says, I love you, God loves you. When God makes a promise to you, God keeps it. And the promise of God through baptism is God's promise to us that we are always a part of God's family, that God will always love us, that what Jesus did on the cross and in the empty tomb didn't change God's anger into love, which is from William Barclay, not Eric Wolf, but it instead was a sign and a seal of the promise that God has always loved us, God always will love us, and that God loves us now, even though sometimes we can be jerks. And during the time of a presidential election, we make a profession of supporting people who go out there and do it professionally. I don't know if y'all have noticed that there's an election this year, but there is one. We, so we, th- we still struggle with this because what we hear from a lot of the segments in society is that baptism is something that we do to signify our belief. And in, in certain denominations, that's what it is because you choose to get baptized. And then there's the argument, do we dunk or do we immerse or do we sprinkle? And in the Lutheran church, we're very efficient because we're German. And so rather than putting people all the way under, we sprinkle and we start with the top and then we don't worry about the rest, right? Because water travels downhill. So we don't have to dunk. But, but the re- what we believe in the Lutheran church, the reason that we baptize infants is we, we believe that baptism is not something that relies on my will, my promise, my faithfulness, my steadfastness, my ability to keep a promise and thank God for that because occasionally I waffle and occasionally I mess up and occasionally I break promises. But instead, baptism is a promise that God makes to us that through water and word we have been marked by the cross of Christ and sealed by the Holy Spirit forever. And when God makes a promise, he does not break it It does not wear out, and there's nothing that we can do to change it because our relationship with God is a relationship that involves power, and in this relationship, God's got it. We don't. So the, the Reformation is really a continuing promise on behalf of God that God is at work in the world that is broken and sinful, in the world that is combative and filled with drama and conflict, making a promise in a world that's, that can't agree that we should all eat or that we should all have housing, that God loves a world in its brokenness, not that it should remain broken, but through the people that have been marked and sealed, the world will look more like God's kingdom
and in God's kingdom through Jesus, we know a couple things, right? We know that hungry people will be fed. We know that people who are naked will have clothing. We know that people who need shelter will have shelter because in God's house, everybody matters. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. And it's so much different than the kingdom of the world where we say we only want to feed those people who deserve it or we only want to give housing to those people who deserve it. And God help them if they don't live up to my standards because my standards are pretty high. They change an awful lot. And let's face it, my standards aren't very graceful. So the Reformation is a reformation of knowledge about who God is. The Reformation is a, is a reformation of hearts so that our hearts may beat and love more like how God loves. And it's a reformation of the Spirit, that the Spirit who God has given us through Jesus Christ will inhabit us and drive us out into the world that God loves to proclaim the good news that we hear at baptism, that God loves us. There's nothing we can do to change it. And the world's just going to have to figure out how to deal with it. Now, bear in mind, that doesn't mean there's nothing to do. In fact, I think in some ways, as we hear this gospel that runs so counter to what we often think, that we should only get things that we earn, and we should only get things that we deserve, and God tells, it, tells us that this is free, and this is something that's a gift to us that we can't earn, can't merit, can't deserve, which flies in the face of a lot of what I often think, you know, what we do is respond. This is what Paul says when he's talking about the law and that boasting is excluded because there's nothing to boast about because there's nothing that we can do to make God love us, to make God make us part of the family. What we do is be us, is exist as baptized children in God's house, marked by the cross of Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit forever in the eternally offensive and uneven covenant that God bestows upon us through no will of our own. And I don't know about y'all, but that challenges me every day of my life because I'm someone who grew, who grew up in a culture that tells me that our relationships are transactional. You know, I do one thing and someone does something for me. I give you money, you give me stuff. It's an easy arrangement because we all kind of end up evenly, right? At the very least, we all agree about the deal. The, one of the things that's so uncomfortable about our relationship with God is it is an uneven relationship. God gives us. And no matter how we spend our lives trying to give back, we never even the score. Because God didn't give it to us to be paid back. God gave it to us as the first step in relationship. And as we all know, any of us who have ever had a friend, any of us who have ever had a spouse, there is no way we can pay back love. Love is something that is freely given. And even though we show our affection back to that person, if we want to keep that relationship, we're never really even, are we? In fact, being loved in my life is always something that makes me feel like I'm indebted. And it's not that kind of scary debt. It's a joyful debt. It's a grateful debt. It's a, it's a debt that causes me to want to continue to give and pay it back with interest because love is that thing that we all crave to know because love tells us the real truth of God's creation, the truth that all of us fret and cry about and worry about, that we are not alone. Isn't that also one of the realities of being human?
how much, how much time do we spend in our lives feeling like nobody understands a thing about us, that, that nobody gets what's really going, going on inside me, that either nobody really understands my pain or nobody really understands my generosity, nobody gets why I hurt, or nobody gets that I'm trying to do something good. And it, you know that old saying, no good deed goes unpunished? That is a statement that says nobody really understands what my motives are. God understands. We, we worship a God who, in our broken-hearted moments, in our grieving moments, in our moments where we have that real playing in our head, I can't believe I said that, I can't believe I did this, wow, I really wish I could take that back, God sees that. God knows that. And those broken places, those places that we believe no one can love, that no one can heal, that no one could ever accept, are the places where God plants the cross. And in that space, that space that we are afraid for anybody to see, that space is the place where the kingdom of God begins and where God begins the healing, loving, redemptive, forgiving, never-ending work of saying to us, you are not alone in your grief. You are not alone in your suffering. You are not alone in your joy and your celebration. I am with you because I promise to be with you. Because through the waters of baptism, you have been marked with the cross of Christ and sealed by the Holy Spirit forever. And that is something that no one can take away from you. In Jeremiah 31, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, you know, we hear God talking about the new covenant that he is going to cut with the people. The new covenant that the people cannot take away. And no longer will people say, know the Lord, because the people will know me. You won't have to teach about me because my word will be written in your hearts. And... This is the other part of the Reformation that I think we still forever will be learning to live into, is that old covenant is the covenant that we think we want. The old covenant is, well, actually kind of the first covenant was Adam and Eve in the garden where God said, don't eat the fruit, right? That's a covenant. That's a a deal. That's a bargain that God struck. As long as you eat any fruit of the garden and do your stuff and all the things that I've assigned to you and you don't eat this particular fruit from these two trees over here, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then everything's good. Just don't do that. And what was the first thing they did in the next chapter? They ate the fruit. And we see something true about humans even now. Adam says, it wasn't me. Eve made me do it. And Eve says, it wasn't me. The serpent made me do it. And the serpent says, it wasn't me. Oh, there's nobody left, right? That we always not only are going to go our own way and do our own thing, but we're going to blame other people for it, right? And we see what the result of that is, that God did as God promised. God cast them out of the garden, but God continued in relationship with them. They saw that they were naked and God gave them clothing. And even though they suffered the consequences of their choices, God continued and God made covenant after covenant after covenant. And it, you know, the next famous one was the Ten Commandments. All right, so you couldn't handle don't eat the fruit. Well, well here's how to live well together. Remember that I'm the Lord, your God, who led you out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, and into this new land that you are coming to. And don't have any gods before me. Well, as God was striking that onto the tablets, what were the people doing? They were at the base of the mountain, melting down their jewelry to worship a fertility god. Because nothing says let's party like we were just released from slavery, like melting down your jewelry to worship a fertility god. Right? And then we see kind of the first shift in how God deals with creation. 
you know, God is angry, rightfully so. And God says, I'm going to destroy my people. And Moses said, remember who you are, God. You are the God who led us out of Egypt. These aren't my people, like God said. These are your people. This is your promise. This is your covenant. And so God relents from punishing and writes them down again. And we prove time and time again that 10 rules are too complicated. Now, now there are other covenants that we make and break with God. And all of those covenants are those transactional kind of relationships where I will be your God and you will be my people and I will make you a holy people and I will give you land and I will give you offspring and I will give you all these things. Just keep up your end of the bargain. You know, it's like the parent who's saying to the kids, you know, I trust you with the TV, don't abuse it. Or I trust you with the car, don't abuse it. I trust you with the internet, don't abuse it. While in the back of your mind, what do you know the kids are going to do? They're going to abuse the TV, they're going to abuse the internet, they're going to abuse the car. And we know that eventually we're going to be having a conversation about that, right? Well, God's smart. God knows these things. But we prove time and time again that though God is smart, we're not. Or at least we're not consistent. And at least we're not faithful. And at the very least, we tend to be fickle about where our loyalties lie. So... All these covenants that God makes that rely on us doing our part, what happens? We break them. Finally, by the time Jesus comes along, God is kind of done with the whole thing. And Jesus says, all right, so just two things. Love God. Love your neighbor. Can't be too hard, right? Do these two things, and it's all cool. Because in doing these things, you fulfill all the law and all the prophets And all that has come before is condensed in these two simple rules. And what happens, but one betrays him. You know, all of them leave him. And one denies him three times. So even those rules we can't follow. Love God. Love each other. And so God says, behold, I do a new thing. I have a new covenant. Not a covenant written on tablets. Not a, not a covenant written on clay, not a covenant cut into animals like I did with Abraham, where Abraham and I walked through the, the split animal, which is why we call it cutting a covenant, because in, in the original covenant with Abraham, they slight, now imagine doing this without power tools. They cut an animal in half lengthwise and walked between the two halves. You know, not, I know it's gross, isn't it? Not, not a covenant in, in any other way that you've ever seen before but it's a covenant written on your hearts in my blood, with my power, by my promise, by my faithfulness. But I am your God, and you are my people, and we shall never be parted again. So the Reformation isn't just something that we, we talk about as something that happened five years ago, 500 years ago. The Reformation is something that is ongoing and continuing and will continue because our relationship with God is something that is ongoing and continuing and will continue. There is never a time when God is not working in our hearts and working in our lives and working in our minds and working through our hands and our feet and our words and our deeds to use us as the tools by which God is transforming the world to look more like God's kingdom. That's what we mean when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven is use us, O God, to make this place look more like your place. Use us 
so that we can be a part of the kingdom that you are building, the kingdom that we are hoping for, the kingdom where we know that those who have tears will have them wiped away, where those who have grief, it will be replaced with joy, where those who are hungry will be fed, where those who need clothing will have clothing, where those who need shelter will have shelter. Use us to make these things a reality in your world now because it already belongs to you. The Reformation is ongoing in my heart because so often I, and and y'all, I know it's going to be hard to believe this, but Sometimes I say things that I shouldn't say, and I make people angry with me. You know, sometimes I, I say things to my wife that are stupid, and she's angry with me. Actually, more often than I care to admit, but she's not here to defend herself, so let's just pretend that's not true. You know, we, we, we are always and still those people who are fickle, and those people who, who stand in this place where we are in need of this covenant that we cannot break because God has written it. And even as we pray, use us. I guarantee that y'all are like me. And sometimes as you're saying that prayer, you're planning that next thing that you're going to say to that person who ticked you off, right? Because we're human and that's how it works. The Reformation is ongoing. And so two questions that we carry with us about how we respond to this ongoing Reformation. How How do we respond to this kingdom that God is creating in our world a world that, frankly, looks very little like what we hope the kingdom of God will look like, you know, either in any of our presidential candidates or in places like Syria or places like other places in the Middle East or places in America where we see poverty and we see people in need. You know, what does it look like to, to be the kingdom of God for the world? So our two questions are this, both for me as an individual and for us as a congregation. What is God calling us to do in the world? And how are we going to respond to it? You know, again, the sitting rocket science is not, they're not hard questions. But, you know, these are the two primary questions of how we respond to baptism. What is God doing? And what is God calling us to do? And what is God calling us to be? And what are we going to do about it? And, and you all might be like I am in this way, too, that... Uh, you know, I served a small congregation in Lexington, South Carolina before I started in the Senate office. And occasion, I would hear often and occasionally join in the frame, refrain, but pastor, we're a small congregation. There's nothing we can do. You know, we don't have enough people. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough resources. We don't have enough this. We don't have enough that. You know, how is it that we can answer the call of God for our world when we are who we are? I know that fear. I know that pain. I know that doubt. I know that frustration and the shame that goes with that question. I've felt it, and I've participated in it. And what I tell you about that is that when God calls us to do something and we discover what God is calling us to do is this, whatever it is, God doesn't call us in a vacuum, but God provides the things that we need. God provides the time and the resources and the energy to do it and the people to accomplish it. And one way I know this is I've seen it happen. And it The myth is that a large congregation is the one that can do a lot of good things. The truth is that small congregations are are flexible enough and creative enough that they can do some things that large congregations can't. There's another congregation in Lexington that several years ago decided we're going to start a small backpack ministry. And the backpack ministry is where they pack backpacks with food for people who are on the free and reduced lunch program. They send that food home with them over the weekend so they'll have something to eat over the weekend too. 
because people need food every day. And when people go home and they can't eat at school and their homes don't have food, they go hungry. And in God's kingdom, people don't go hungry, right? So they said, we're going to make the world look a little more like the kingdom of God, and we're going to pack these backpacks. And they were a congregation that didn't have a lot of money for it. But it turns out that when God put it in their hearts to do this ministry, God also provided in people's heart the desire to fund this. And so they started it. And they went from doing 20 backpacks to 40 to 100 and something. And here's where the story gets really fun. There was a large congregation, one of the largest Methodist congregations in South Carolina that's just half a mile from this congregation. In fact, their campus is right across the street that intersects where the, where the Lutheran congregation is. They're, the, they're a congregation that just put on an $8 million addition to their congregation building and paid for it. So they, they put it up with no debt. They won't let you put anything on the walls, but, you know, it's there. And, and they saw what this small congregation was doing. And a group of people from that large Methodist church down the road said, well, we want to do this too. They didn't start their own program. They began supporting the program at this congregation in Lexington, this small Lutheran congregation in Lexington. And all of a sudden, they had the funding to do more backpacks. And so through their faithfulness and their creativity and their willingness to ask, you know, what is God calling us to do? And then how do we respond to it? All of a sudden, they, you can call it guilted, you can call it inspired, whatever, whatever verb you want to put there. You know, they now are in partnership with a larger congregation who didn't come up with this on their own. And not because the people who are there aren't smart, not because they don't want to serve Jesus, but because where God's spirit is, God's spirit is active and God's spirit is inspiring. And it doesn't matter whether you're two people or 2,000 people or 20 people or 400 people. Where God is, the world changes because God knows what to do with our doubt and our brokenness and our, our shame and our pain. And in those spaces, God's reformation is constantly at work. Amen.